Buddha. Good morning, Church. The reading um, this morning is taken from um, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, you'll find this passage on page 1161. 1161. So that's um, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 21. And the passage is headed, The Ministry of Reconciliation. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And may the Lord bless richly this reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, Father God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the freedom to worship you. And we give thanks that your spirit is with us now. And we pray now that your spirit would increase in us. May we hear now the things that you want us to hear. And may we turn away from the things that you want us to forget. In the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, good morning, lovely people, and it is, as always, lovely to see you all again. And as our wonderful Beth said just a little bit earlier on, today we're having a think about Jesus on a mission, the mission of Jesus, as we carry on this whole theme this year about mission. As an LMA, we explore mission and what mission means to us. Last week, we had a think about Israel, the people of the Old Testament, But today we're thinking about the one through whom out of that nation came the Messiah, Jesus, the one who came to give life eternal, the one who came to give the forgiveness of sins, the one who we come to worship and glorify today, the one who is central to who we are, central to our faith, the one through whom without we wouldn't be here today. But before we turn to him, I want to take you back to September 1998, when I had hair, I was a teenager, and I thought I was a pretty cool guy. And I want to take you back to a band that I was absolutely loved of that particular era called the Manic Street Preachers. And me and my friends were obsessed with this band, the Manics. They were a Welsh band from South Wales. We were from South Wales. And we wanted to be like them. And they released, in that month of that year, an album called This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And if you like your late 90s rock with a slight political edge, I can thoroughly recommend it. We loved this band. And so we were thrilled to hear that they would be signing copies of their album in the Virgin Megastore on Cardiff's Queen Street at midnight on the day the album was released. And so we made plans to go down there, none of us, all adults yet, to go down there, get our mams and dads to drop us off, get our album signed, meet the band, and then come home again. And all my friends did that. One even got in the news to be interviewed. But I was poorly that day and so couldn't go. But my sister, bless her, went on my behalf and got an album signed for me, which I still keep today. It remains the one nice thing that my sister's done for me in my life to this date. I was so happy that she had done this thing for me. I listened to the album and I thought it was amazing. But that title, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, is probably the one thing that remains in terms of legacy from that time. It's a phrase which in contemporary society we hear quite a lot these days as well. And it wasn't a phrase that the Manic Street preachers themselves came up with, more one they adopted. The man who was said to coin the phrase was called Nye Bevan, a firebrand politician who was Secretary of State for Health who founded the NHS. And what Nye used to do was go into meetings, give speeches, and he would state publicly his point of view on a certain subject. 
Then, after he had stated what he thought, and he was very convincing in telling people what he thought, a wonderful orator and a great person, he would then encourage others to share their views. And he would say at the end of his spiel, this is my truth. Now, tell me yours. But as time has gone on, this kind of phrase, this kind of concept has come to embrace a new way of thinking in the world. A one which basically suggests that there are multiple truths out there and that you are free to adopt whatever truth it is that you want to adopt. And in one sense, that's absolutely fine. We are all good, respectable people. We like to respect the views of others. We like to respect the opinions of others. We want to hear what other people want to say. But we also know that on certain things, there are truths. In more recent years especially, this kind of idea of holding on to your own truth has kind of been tarnished ever so slightly. It's the reason why a president of the United States can say, I won an election that they clearly didn't win. It was their truth. It's why celebrities can say certain things of, this is what I did when they didn't. It is their truth. We don't so much say these days, this is my truth, tell me yours, but recollections may vary. And somewhere in the midst of it all, this concept of truth, this idea of truth, this knowledge of truth and what it is and what it means to us has somehow kind of got lost. And even among the people of God, that can be the case. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have different opinions. We can have different interpretations on things like the Bible and what the Bible might be saying at a different time. But there are fundamental truths that we absolutely hold on to. The most fundamental of all is Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus takes away our sins. And Jesus is coming back. The fundamental truth of what it is we believe. And, if you will, the fundamental mission of Jesus. A few months ago, those lovely guys there from the CU invited me to the classrooms and give a little bit on what is the gospel. And we had a really long chat about what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And there are so many things that Jesus did that can be held as good news. But the mission of Jesus, well, that could best be summed up in one word. And one word that Paul, right into the church in Corinth, used today. And that word is reconciliation. Why did Jesus come and live? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus go to heaven? Why will Jesus come back? For reconciliation, reconciliation between people and God, reconciliation for creation, reconciliation between heaven and earth to reconcile what always should have been. We again hold on to the truth that people fell away from God and need to be reconciled once again to God. And that is about our sin, that is about the state of creation. And that is about the state of what will be when Jesus comes back. 
all things reconciled under his name. But in that is also the problem. Because reconciliation is a two-way street. If me and my good mate Hannah Green have an argument tomorrow, on Tuesday, which probably is not going to happen, but you never know, on Tuesday, I might go to her and say, oh, Hannah, I'm really sorry. I got a bit carried away to me. And this is what Hannah will say to me. She won't do that. She'll go, no, you're not. Go away from me. Just like that. That is a reconciliation. We are not reconciled. One party might be reconciled, but the other party isn't. True reconciliation hasn't taken place. And for so many people, perhaps now, the place where they're at is they don't want to be reconciled with God. They might feel that they don't need to be reconciled with God. They may not even believe in God to be reconciled with him. It was only yesterday that I was reading in the Cambrian News how in Keredigion, for the first time, those under 40, the majority don't identify as Christian. A huge step in the society that we live in. People don't necessarily think anymore that they need to be reconciled with God. And in one sense, you can kind of get it. And I'll tell you for why. If I go up to one of my friends now who queued up at the Virgin Megastore on Queen Street to get their album signed and said, you need Jesus, they might turn around and say to me, do I? I live a good life. I'm healthy. I've got a good job. I've got a good income. I drive a nice car. I've got a nice family. I've got a lot of friends. I live in a community where I'm respected. I've got great hobbies. I'm generally speaking quite content or quite happy with my lot. Why on earth would I need Jesus? Why on earth would I need the complication of adding one more thing in my life? Why would I need the complication of saying, well, now I need to be a disciple. I should go to church on a Sunday. That's an extra thing to do. I should read the Bible. That's an extra thing to do. I should praise the Lord. That's an extra thing to do. Why on earth should I add in that complication? And in some ways, it was easier for generations who have gone before because, well, they lived in more desperate times. They almost needed a God to believe in. They needed someone to be there for them. They needed something, but, well, we don't so much now, do we? That is how so many people think now. And that is a reality for a lot of people now. And that, for a lot of people, is their truth now. There is a certain belief that they don't need to believe in God. And checking the mix as well, well, there's a lot of gods that you can believe in. There's a lot of ways forward. You can be a moral person, yet not believe in God. You can be a good person, but not believe in God. You can be a person who is full of respect, give money to charity, help those in need, but not do so out of a belief in God, but out of a want to better society. There is an absolute understanding for a lot of people that that is truth for them. 
But here's the kicker. It was like that 2,000 years ago as well. Paul, who wrote these words, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the disciple call, call him what you will, didn't believe that he needed Jesus until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul believed that he was a good bloke. Paul believed that he was a righteous, upstanding man. Paul believed that he was an intellectual. In fact, Paul persecuted these new Christians because they thought they were wrong-uns. Paul thought that they were corrupting the people of Israel and society. And what's more, Paul ministered in a philosophical Greek culture, a place where people had multiple truths, a place where people believed in multiple gods, a place where there were so many problems and issues even within the church. Why do we have the majority of the New Testament and the epistles and all the rest of it, the letters that Paul wrote? Because the church was so screwed up, they needed correction on putting things right. There were so many truths out there, and people like Paul were trying to write and say this is the truth. And the truth is, the people need to be reconciled with God. The fundamental truth of it all is people need that reconciliation. The big challenge is how do you explain to people who feel that they don't need God that they need to be reconciled to God? How do you take that mission of Jesus further and explain who Jesus is? And Paul in this particular passage, really addresses that. As he talks about this need for reconciliation, he calls the people of God to be ambassadors of Christ. Now, I'm of a certain age, and I'm of a certain vintage, and when I hear the word ambassador, I think of a certain, Hannah Green's already one step ahead of me, I think of a certain advert that came out in probably the 1980s or 1990s for a chocolate brand, an ambassador's ball. And basically, in the the ambassador's ball, there's lots of posh shows, lots of well-to-do people, lots of sophisticated people. When I think of an ambassador, I think of a person who's got this stuff together. In the world now, An ambassador is a person who's got this stuff together. An ambassador is and historically always has been a highly regarded person from a kingly court. A person of high regard, a high-ranking official in a court, in a country, in a nation who was sent out to do the bidding for that nation. A person who is called to be a representative, a person who is called to go out in the name of the king to demonstrate the good news of the king, to demonstrate the power of the king. Think of that word, high-ranking official. And I say that word because that is how God sees you today. You are high-ranking officials in his kingdom, tasked with going out to demonstrate to a world who might not believe that they should believe in him. 
task to go out and negotiate and tell people that the truth is that Jesus is needed in the world. You are ambassadors of the gospel. You are called by Jesus to be missionaries in his field. You are called to go out and proclaim this truth. The big question again, though, is how? Well, in some ways, it all starts in-house. And, once again, the reason why we have letters like 2 Corinthians in the first place, the church of God needs to be in order first. Basically, we need to make sure that we are holy in the name of the Lord. We need to make sure that we've kind of got our act together. In the news in more recent weeks and probably months, there's been a lot of talk, if you will, about high-ranking government officials and what they might do in their private offices compared to the face that they may present to the public and how those two things can't match up and really how what you do in private needs to match up with what you do in public and is exactly the same with the church of God. What we do in private, how we live our lives here, what we do here, how we are with each other should match up with what we do in the world outside. It is no good going up the saying to people, you need Jesus, Jesus loves you, and then calling someone rotten inside the church. It is no good backbiting, gossiping, lying, scratching our eyes, or whatever else it might be. I've never scratched an eye, I don't know how fast if you do it, but doing all this kind of thing within the church and then presenting yourself as holy and lovable outside. People ain't thick. They can see through the nonsense. And when people see through the nonsense, they get hurt all the more when they see that you are trying to present something to them that you don't live up to. And you don't live up to the glory of God. You are not fit to be an ambassador. A very good friend of mine, when they were coming up to ordination, were asked to go and see a church in the Diocese of Liverpool. And sure enough, one Sunday, they got on a train, went to this church, and sat down on one of the pews. A lady came and said, hello, lovely to meet you. Are you new? Yeah, first week here, the rest of it. Oh, be careful. We don't like the vicar very much. He's a terrible preacher. Oh, he's terrible at doing communion. We don't care for him very much. It's lovely to see you, by the way. She actually turned down going to that church because she wondered what on earth they might say about her after it. What we do in private in here has to match up with what we do in public. And when we go out, we need to be willing to do what Jesus did. We need to be willing to live out the gospel of Jesus. But we also have to be willing to do what Paul did as well. A couple of years ago, for those who were about, you might remember, because it was mainly done online, we followed Acts. We had a year of Acts, and we followed the story of Acts for an entire year. And it was lovely, but it was really frustrating. And I'll tell you why it was really frustrating. It was frustrating because Paul done half repeat himself. 
We hear in Acts chapter 8 of how we have converted on the road to Damascus. It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. Then we hear time and time again about how was Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And that's not all. When we go through all the rest of the letters we wrote, we hear about how Paul was converted and the difference that Jesus made in his life. And it's a lovely thing. Great, Paul, we love hearing from you, but when you're trying to find something new to say, it's really hard to do for a Sunday morning. But there is a wider point here. What did Paul do to reach people? Paul used his story. Paul used his conversion story. He told people of how rotten he was and didn't shy away from it. He told people about how sceptical he was and didn't shy away from it. And really, most importantly, he told people about the difference that Jesus made to his life. And in a world of truths, this is the most important truth of all that people would like to hear, the difference that Jesus has made of your life. People might think, oh, do I need a saviour? People might think, oh, I'm doing well. But I believe the truth is that everyone, even if it's deep down, they're still searching. People are looking for something. They're looking for that redemption and they're looking for that reconciliation that Paul talked about. How we tap into that so often isn't on a big level of, come, you horrible sinner. Though sometimes we need to proclaim that there is such a thing as sin and we need reconciliation. So much of it is done through the relationships that we are willing to build, the relationships we have with people and telling the good news of what Jesus has done through us. What is the gospel according to Bill? What is the gospel according to Sam? What is the gospel according to Shazza? What is the gospel that God has given to us? What is the truth of the gospel that we have? What is the message from Jesus that we have to share as his ambassadors? What is the good thing that Jesus has done for us? And do we match it up with our behavior? Do we match it up with holiness? Do we match it up with who the Lord is in us? Do we match it up in here? Because we can complain those good things, but if we haven't got in right in here, it goes nowhere. We need to get our act together. And the way in which we get our act together is by looking at Jesus and returning to Jesus and looking what Jesus has done. We are reconciled in the name of Jesus and that is the good news that we cling on to today. There is no sin that is held against us because of what Jesus has done. There is no record of sin that is held against us because of what Jesus has done. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are reconciled in the name of Christ. Now Christ calls us to go out and tell. Christ calls us to go out and tell that story of reconciliation. Christ calls us to go out and share the good news, the reconciliation that we have with the world. Christ calls us, calls us to go into a world and say, this is my truth. 
now tell me yours. And by the way, this is why my truth really, really works. God calls us to go out and share that good news. May we look to the Lord. May the Lord lead us. May the Lord guide us. And may the Lord completely bless us. Let's pray.